Digital Drift, episode 49, originally recorded Saturday, 24th of April, 2014. The Disney Specials, part one, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Welcome to an ongoing series of podcast reviews covering the Disney animated classics and featuring myself, Alex Shaw, my wife Sharon Shaw, and Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Beginning with Snow White in 1937, we will chart the studio's history one movie at a time. These will span out across 2015 and beyond, and will begin as considerably shorter shows than usual, but by the 1990s Third Renaissance they will expand considerably as we have more than ever to discuss. We will look at how Disney have progressed as a studio, one that without a doubt shaped the medium of animation and dominated its cinematic expression throughout the 20th century and beyond. Now the list we're going up by is the Walt Disney Animation Studios Films with Snow White at number one and Frozen at number 53. And each time we'll be answering three questions among ourselves. One, what do you like about this movie? Two, what don't you like? And three, how did it advance Disney? This allows us to put our own personal, sure to be occasionally controversial, spin on the dozens of sacred cows we have before us. But at the same time, we are trying to seek objectivity to track a studio's progression. We will have an episode entirely devoted to the evolution of the Disney princess. There are dozens of histories, documentaries, books, and DVD extras which extol the brilliance of this studio. And while we will do that often, we are blessed with the free reign to call them on their bullshit behavior where necessary, hopefully making this a relatable and relevant series. So a quick introduction before we move on to Snow White. Uh, Let's see, Walt himself was born in Chicago, Illinois, 1901 raised on a farm uh very early in his life he fell in love with vaudeville and early silent movies really had a really got fascinated by entertainment uh he ended up doing some cartooning in school he studied at the art institute in chicago he tried enlisting in the army for world war one but was only 16 so he was rejected uh he later managed to get himself involved by joining the red cross american ambulance corps and arrived in france just about as the war ended as my understanding, he did a lot of drawings and paintings like inside the trucks or maybe on the trucks as well. I'm not sure while he was there. Uh, when he returned to the States, he started working in commercial art and ad companies. And it was during the 20s that he discovered and immediately fell in love with animation, which was a pretty new novelty at the time. Just uh, lots of little shorts that you might see in these theaters. I think uh, Felix the Cat mm. would have been around around that time and... Or, or shortly after and becoming very huge. He really immersed himself in it. He started making animated cartoons on the side after work and started up a little company called Laughagrams with his friend Ub Iwerks, who was honestly probably the better animator of the two. He had a little trouble getting things off the ground and securing clients who felt like giving a lot of money to a 19-year-old. So when Laughagrams inevitably went under, he decided he was going to go to Hollywood. So at 21, with $40 in his pocket, he moved out to California. Uh, Once he got there, he ended up founding his own studio with his brother Roy in 1923, who was the much more business-minded of the two. And they set up shop first in his uncle's garage and uh, later in some rented office spaces. And they managed to secure a deal with a New York-based distributor named M.J. Winkler for a series called The Alice Comedies, which were a bunch of Mm. simple cartoons based on Alice in Wonderland, which involved a live-action actress playing Alice, uh, interacting with a lot of cartoon characters. 
Uh, Walt animated it all himself at first with the help of two ink and paint girls, but they eventually brought Ub Iwerks out to the studio to take over animation so Walt could focus on directing and story. Um, the Alice comedies ran for around four years, after which Walt decided to create a completely new series that was entirely animated. Uh, he developed a new character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which was very clearly inspired by Felix the Cat, who, again, was super popular at the time. Uh, Walt created about 26 Oswald shorts over the course of a year. But unfortunately, when he approached Winkler to see about getting money for a second year of cartoons, he found that the distributor had gone behind his back and hired up most of his animation staff with the intent of, with the intent of producing Oswald cartoons without Walt's studio for less money. And more unfortunately, Winkler owned the rights to Oswald, so Walt really could not do a single thing to stop him. And this was a pretty major low point. But Walt learned his lesson, and from that point, he ne- made sure that he owned every single thing he made. So now Walt needed a new character. Fortunately, uh, his dear friend of Iwerks was still on his side, as was his wife, and the two of them developed a new character. And most accounts that I've read suggest that Ub was the one who was most responsible for his actual design. Uh, Walt originally planned to name the character Mortimer, but his wife suggested that Mickey was the better name. Uh, Ub animated two unreleased silent cartoons with Mickey, but... The Jazz Singer had just come out around this time, which was the first film to feature synchronized sound, and Walt was really excited by the idea of making the first synchronized sound cartoon, so he poured all of his resources into producing Steamboat Willie, which opened in 1928 to rave reviews and made Mickey Mouse an immediate sensation. And Mickey Mouse would very quickly overtake Felix, who did not enter the sound era gracefully. Mm. Really really annoying voice. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like a lot of silent hey, actors, Mickey, actually. How you doing there? <laughs> no, it's 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 kind of like like one of those. I mean, you could. It's probably on YouTube. I'm sure. It sounds like one of those sort of more like female actors sort of doing a male cartoon voice. Hey there, let's go out and do it. Like that really. That just sounds like, like Mickey. Mickey. <laughs> it's like Mickey, but a little bit more obnoxious. See, Mickey's always struck me as like super obnoxious, like ha 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 ha, and he's got this kind of like nervous, like he's he's almost like a crackhead uh, kind of thing. <laughs> Lest we forget, most of the second half of Steamboat Willie is almost entirely Mickey Mouse being cruel to small animals, playing them like musical instruments. Oh, that's good because I thought we had a problem for a minute there, huh? All right, now get out there and make me some goddamn money. They've had difficulty in the past few decades making Mickey their, like, headline guy. And I think part of that may may come down to his voice. He's harder to relate to than Donald, who lives a life of frustration. Sorry, Karen. It actually has has the much weirder voice of the two. You stop to think about it. But, yeah. But anyway, riding high on that success, Walt began to create a new series of cartoons called Silly Symphonies, each of which featured all new casts of characters, which allowed for a lot of experimentation from project to project. Mm. And these were really successful. Several of them won Oscars. Uh, The Three Little Pigs, in particular, even got listed above the feature film at a lot of theaters due to how popular it was. Uh, I mean, it was the Great Depression at this point, so America badly needed these kind of cheerful boosts. uh, You seen The Wise Little Hen? I think the wise little hen also was a one of their very successful ones. That's one of those I ones where it's like basically everyone has to pitch in, help to pick the corn, otherwise you're going to go hungry. And that one also yeah. happened to introduce Donald Duck. Oh uh, yeah, and Peter Pig. <laughs> who can forget? <laughs> and uh, the grasshopper in the ant, uh, inspiration for the bu- a bug's life. 
yeah. Oh, yeah. Folks, check out Silly Symphonies. There is some absolute heritage in there. Yeah, lots of great old Silly Symphony stuff. Come here, son. Listen. The good book says the Lord provides. There's food on every tree. I see no reason to worry and work. No, sir. Not me. Oh, the world owes us a living. Oh, the world owes us a living. <laughs> you should soil your Sunday plans <laughs> like those other foolish ants. Come on, let's play and sing and dance. But yeah, that's kind of where Disney Animation was at the time, doing lots of fun little gag-based shorts. That's what a lot of animation was at the time, um, especially once like uh, Felix came in and characters like him really kind yeah. of established what animation was. It was it was a fun little gags, a cool little kind of a... Uh, what's It's kind of a... I don't want to say gimmick, but it was just kind of a novelty thing. Like yeah. you'd see these in, you'd see these in theaters, these little shorts created that were kind of like newspaper comic strips come to life yeah and and a lot of them were made like there were a lot of uh animators at the time were comic strip artists who just kind of made the transition yeah. and you can kind of see that in the style too in the way it's presented and the uh way the kind of the all the action is staged and framed it feels like a lot of comic strip gags kind of just again brought to life to put it in context for the especially for the younger viewers who, can, who have maybe no concept of this uh, viewers, listeners, <laughs> to put it in context, especially for some of the younger listeners, imagine a world without the internet, without TV, just the cinema as your uh, uh, outlet for visual uh, entertainment. It's the cinema and then there's the wireless at home, the radio. You'd go to the cinema, you'd pay a couple of nickels, and then you'd expect to be there for hours and they just fill the cinema with stuff to watch, like newsreels and shorts and movies and double bills. And they just it was there to keep the, the money coming in. That's why it was the golden age of cinema, because there was f*** all else to do. That's the only game in town, basically. That's yeah. where you went to watch movies or anything. Yeah. And during the 30s, like Mickey was doing very well. Disney was doing very well. But um, Walt was an incredibly ambitious fellow and, and very much a dreamer as well. And... He got it in his head kind of in the mid-30s that he wanted to try making an actual full-length animated feature. Oh, yeah. And nobody else really seemed to agree that that was a good idea. He was regularly ridiculed for this idea. Most people thought that, like, again, all that you would ever see of animation in theaters and at the time was lots of little cartoon gag shorts and people told him as much that like no one is going to sit for an hour and a half of this that's mm. just going to get exhausting and boring they were and, curios they were not something to emotionally engage with yeah you you did not see animated film stories so much again they were just little comic gag like uh, collections of gags yes we say that but that stigma still exists it kind Especially of does. in the west yeah, adults do not go and see animated films unless it's a family related film Put it like this, Beowulf did not do gangbusters because it is, is uh, weird to put out an animated film that's really not for kids. It definitely, There's def definitely some growth yet to happen there. Like, we're, we're not done with that kind of cultural education. Yeah. Just I mean, in, in, in other cultures, like so Japan, and this is just the norm. You go to see grown-up stuff in animated form, and it's just seen as any other uh, art form as accessible to all ages and as a tool for conveying this. But for some reason, in the West, there's still this idea that if it's animated, it's got to be, if not 
directly aimed at kids, then definitely accessible to kids. And if it's definitely not accessible to kids, alarm bells start ringing in people's heads. And it's that's how you get uh, that does not succeed. These things are very expensive to produce, especially and increasingly so. Mm. I can definitely understand the fear of trying to take any sort of risk in that environment and create something that is not... Like if you're marketing something to families, you're essentially marketing to nearly everybody. Yeah. Like, it, there's very few people that a Pixar or DreamWorks film can't be for. But uh, if you make something that is only for adults, then you've kind of, not only have you got this cultural stigma you've got to deal with, but you've got a much smaller audience that you're trying to attract. Yeah. So it's, I, I can see why that it's still a thing that's not often done, it, which is absolutely a shame. But uh, from a business stance, I can definitely understand it. Yeah. It, it, so back then... There's Even an interesting worse. parallel, that's all I mean. That just in, in 37, they're like, you're never going to get grown-ups to come see a movie that's uh, entirely animated. Yeah, and, and gr- granted, a lot of them were still probably thinking, Disney's just thinking of putting together a long, silly symphony, which would have... Yeah. They were right, that probably would have been exhausting and not nearly as much fun. But, so, I mean, some people's complaints were kind of silly, like the cartoons so are too bright em- and colorful, people's <laughs> eyes will hurt by the end of an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, there was that, there was that complaint in the... I listened to the, the commentary going through it, compiled from archival footage, including some stuff from Walt himself. I'm trying to imagine what a full-length silly symphony would be. Um, Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually still has a story and a plot, even if it is all silly and goofy. Like, gotcha. imagine all, some of these package films if they were all just one extended short. Oof. Just a single, like, or just take one of the musical sequences from Three Caballeros or something yeah. and make that one thing feature length. I guess that's what some people thought Disney was wanting to do. Which it does sound exhausting. Would have been, been a know. terrible idea, yeah. yeah. But... No, Disney had a different thing in mind, and he really wanted to elevate the quality and the production value of what an animated film was as well. And so throughout the 30s, he was basically training up his team. He was building up a team of some of the best artists. The Depression was going on, so offering a good job to anybody who was an exceptional animator at the time was he was able to pull together an incredible amount of talent just from all over the country. He was pushing them constantly to get better and step it up and advance what they were able to do, both kind of as an art of animation and the believability of the way things moved and in the subtlety of the motion, but also in the tech they were using. And you can kind of start seeing it in some of the silly symphonies they made. Like, um, like if you look at the old mill in particular, it's kind of, kind of a really noticeable one right around 1937. It's the first, uh, I believe it's the first... Disney film that made use of the multiplane camera, which would prove to be immensely valuable for the uh, for animation for the animated films they would make later, and also f- for really really detailed, beautiful painterly backgrounds and stuff that you just had not seen anywhere else at the time. So Walt was really like short by short trying to push this team to be better and to just to new heights that no one had ever seen before. And I mean, Walt, as we will be talking about a lot is very, was very much the visionary type. And he knew the success of these shorts wasn't going to sustain the studio forever. And he already had a much bigger project in mind, which was a full length animated feature, but he knew that the team wasn't quite ready for that challenge yet. They hadn't really progressed their art to the degree that, that it needed to be. They were still, 
car- like carts animated cartoons then were still much closer to comic strips in their simplicity. They were very flat. They were very simple characters doing mostly little wacky hijinks things. And the Silly Symphony started bring a, bringing a lot more interesting stuff in that. They brought color in. Uh, they started really started painting in some incredible backgrounds and doing a lot of work with trying to bring a bit more of a realistic uh, look to stuff and a lot more of a painterly look to things. Mm. And they started trying to introduce humanoid characters who animated and moved a bit more realistically with varying degrees of success. But that was sort of the, I think the human character thing was one of the big metrics that uh, Walt was looking for. As soon as he felt that they could really do that, then they would be ready. He, ba- he basically used the Silly Symphonies as his training ground so that the team could develop some new techniques and improve the skills of, and improve their art skills. He had the animators taking life drawing classes. He was constantly pushing them to develop their skills, take the extra time, really bring something new, p- do better than they had done before. He started hiring a lot more talented animators from around the country wherever he could find them, which was a lot easier during the Depression because nobody was working. And then in 1934, one night, he gathered the team together and he told them, we are going to make an animated feature. And he proceeded to pitch the story for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Want to know a secret? Promise not to tell? We are standing by a wishing well. Make a wish into the well. That's all you have to do. And if you hear it echoing, So if you could narrow it down to just a few things that you personally like a lot about Snow White. We'll talk about its historical significance afterwards, but what do you personally like about it? The look that they created has got a very like, European children's storybook style, which it was a good choice for them to start with, I think. Very simple, but uh, also definitely beyond what had been done before then. I, th- I think it's a very pretty look for the film and pretty unique as well Mm -hmm. especially for the time some of the songs are i mean some of these songs are still earbugs now (laughs) 
I don't. I mean, obviously, Snow. We have come so far from Snow White. Uh, oh, many decades that have followed, but there's still like some really nice. I wouldn't probably. I wouldn't probably put much of her for her in the actual personal like category. Maybe in significance, but uh, there's some excellent character work in Snow White. Again, for considering the uh, considering the time, like some of the that the dwarves are all individually developed, and some of them have very charming, unique little personalities and ways that they're animated, and they all feel very distinct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for the, again, just for the t- for the time, you got seven dwarves, but man, well, they're I more wish. exaggerated than the Hobbit dwarves, but yeah, for sure, for sure. And there's and there's still a lot of growth to do. I partly, I guess, this ties a little bit into the significance. But another thing that I really like watching the film now is that it feels, by comparison. You can kind of see the seams. It feels a bit rougher. You can tell that this is their first feature and that they're trying a lot of new stuff that's really hard and they haven't perfected it yet, but that kind of helps you see through the cracks a bit and actually appreciate what they're actually doing. You can kind of see the cells over backgrounds. You can kind of see the trickiness of the camera moves they're trying to simulate with this multiplane camera and kind of appreciate, even though it is very simple compared to what they would even be able to do 10 years later, it is for the time so complex that it is really like I really love watching it and just seeing what they have achieved by this point. It's interesting you should put it that way, actually, Dan, because that was one of the things that struck me about. Um, I don't know if appeal is really quite the word I want to use, but when I was watching Snow White particularly, um, and it is still evident in some of the later ones as well, what you said about the seeing the the background cells through the. Uh, the character cells, the fact that you'd get this little, um, these ripples of texture that you could see through the character's clothes, especially if the colours were particularly light. Um, And as they were moving, you can see the fact that the the background texture behind them doesn't change. And it is almost like looking at um, a really intricate uh, outfit where you can see the stitching and as a result you can see how intricate that stitching is and how um, how skilled the tailor has to be to be able to put those things together. Yeah, which is, which is something that I think these days, because you've got such a polished effect, um, it's you, you don't get that, especially not in something that's, uh, that's CG animated. It's very true, and you—it's which is, I mean, good because you're not thinking about how it's being being made. You're lost in the what's actually being presented to you. Which I mean, it's like a lot of those good. If you're really good at certain jobs in film, people will not know at all that you were there and what you did because you Absolutely. did such a great job. Yeah, but, but but in the sense of looking back and sort of trying to pick apart how these things were put together, you need to be able to see the seams. You need to be able to see the line drawings underneath and that kind definitely. of thing. Definitely. Oh, I, I can I can say right now what I really really like about Snow White. Um, Grumpy. <laughs> I didn't realize it until I st- uh, saw it um, twice recently uh, for in preparation for this. But he's the only character I can relate to in the entire story. I think it's just because everybody's so super chirpy, or like the evil queen, just like utterly despicable and, and, and uh, impossible to relate to. Grumpy is the only character that has an arc. He goes from being grumpy to realizing that he genuinely cares for somebody, which ultimately is the exact opposite of being very, very selfish. And that's all. It's a very simple story for him, but Snow White is not changed when she comes out of it. And he is. That's a good point. He is about the only one that really does have a full character arc. It's not a very character-based or driven story, really. 
And I'll go you one further. And I realized this only on the most recent time when we watched it, mere minutes before we started this podcast. Grumpy Shrek. Hmm. That's what Shrek is. Shrek is Grumpy rescuing the princess instead of the prince. That's a good observation. I like that. We'll obviously go into far more detail on this during A, the uh, princess episode of Disney, and the uh, we're going to be doing Shrek podcasts at some point. Uh, but Shrek is instrumental in the changing the f- way that fairy tales and princesses are portrayed in cinema. And... At its core, you got Grumpy, who has the same arc as Shrek, sort of. Only Shrek's is more... is deeper. And in fact, with Shrek the musical, is deeper still. That then leads us around to what I'm not keen on in uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which is that it's incredibly shallow. It is that. It, it is that, and I definitely won't argue that point. It feels like the, like the star of the movie is not any one of the characters mm. it is really just the fairy tale itself like oh, yeah, yeah. check it out like this is a fairy tale illustrate like illustration from the storybook that we have brought to life for you like snow white herself is while very sweet and nice also quite bland most of the dwarves are not terribly distinct or and they don't, almost nobody has an arc really of any of any description it's it's not character based at all it's very much like here is the story tale the fairy tale mm. playing out before you and just kind of and you can still kind of feel watching this one especially the um the old gag short like uh origins of what disney had been doing before there's a lot of it feels like it's kind of broken up into a lot of um musical like song sequences a lot of which are very gag based and the, the, and the story washing, kind of washing ties the together. hands before lunch seems to take yeah, yeah. ages the yodeling sequence feels like hours sometimes yeah like they're, it's like a bunch of little silly symphonies kind of strung together by a common story that a larger theme you can sort of feel disney trying to figure out all right how do we take what we've been doing and convert this into a full film story hmm type thing and they and they don't it's not completely successful i think it's a great start but it's i think it's actually the next film that where they will actually figure out how to do it right it is a very stripped down version of that fairy tale you know even even the the basic snow white story is more intricate than the one that they tell but i think the focus here is very much on um, the mechanics of telling a story in animation that is feature length and then in being sort of tied up in that, they, they haven't really got the capacity at this stage to focus on the actual story that they're telling. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, it didn't need to be super in-depth. It just had to exist. And it, it, for what it actually managed to achieve, it blew everyone out of the water. And it, it was massively, massively important as a step forwards. Uh, all of the depth and uh, the, you know, you can judge it by modern standards against all the, the, the later Disney's and it doesn't really hold up. But the fact that it was able to come out of the gate and not just be a laughable, boring, mismanaged wreck of a film was- Do you know what it actually reminds me of a little bit? You know, when we were watching Apollo 13 mm-hmm. and we were basically not to any great extent but laughing at the primitive nature of the switches and and 
readouts and um, dials that they had in their cockpit and the fact that they were it was possible to do the calculations that they needed to make their flight on long a slide rule yeah yeah and yeah, from this position, it's very easy to look back and say, how ridiculous, how on earth did they manage to, you know, fly to the moon in things that were built like that? But they did. Yeah, it's the step. It, in video game terms, have a guess at which game this most reminds me of in terms of stepping forwards and going, now this is going to be our dot, dot, dot. I'd say it's either like the early Pong or early Mario I was actually going to say The Legend of Zelda. That's not a bad comparison either, actually. Well, um, yeah. there, there, were, there were many games before Legend of Zelda that were actually full-length games that uh, were uh, proper adventures. Legend of Zelda was the first one that sort of grabbed and captured the West, at least, and said, hey, and, and obviously Japan, too, and uh, took them for the adventure that, that would really stick with them and really have an impact. I like that better. That's yeah, like the early Pong and pre Nintendo era stuff is kind of like all these the shorts and the early experiments and figuring out what animation is. Yeah. But it's the it's a lot of those early Nintendo NES games that really just set the tone for everything that follows. I suppose you could call uh, Super Mario Brothers Steamboat Willie. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, on the whole, though, the pacing of Snow White just as a film and by modern standards, very slow, very uh, not a whole lot happens but it's still it's still very charming it's a fun little light watch and i imagine at the time given the great depression was happening a film like this that was very cheerful and light and all that was a welcome distraction also if you compare it to everything else released in 1937 oh man you know even the best films of 1937 are not exactly going to engage most people let alone children by today's standards so it's uh, you know again it's very important to look at it in context and it, it does still to a degree hold up today it is i mean lyra was watching it fairly transfixed wasn't she pretty much yeah women courage men courage don't be nervous gosh it's wet it's cold too we ain't going to do it are we well It'll please the princess. I'll take a chance for her. Me too. (laughs) Her wiles are beginning to work. But I'm warning you. You Give them an inch, and they'll walk all over you. Don't listen to that old warthog. Come on now, man. How hard do you scrub? Get in the tub. You have to watch where it doesn't go. No, no, no. Don't get excited. Here we go. Step up to the tub. Hey, no disgrace. Just pull up your sleeves and get them in place. Then scoop up the water and rub it on your face and go... Finally, we can't talk about the princess much because we're saving her for the princess show. However, we can talk about the prince. Oi. <laughs> or we could if there was anything to say. Yeah, the the prince in Snow White is um, is disastrous. He's a total drip, and um, I don't think there are many uh, girls of any age uh, these days who would actually find him uh, the the kind of the dreamboat prince that he's supposed to be. I don't know what the 1930s American women were looking for in a 
Prince, Madam, maybe he fits the bill perfectly. I don't know, <laughs> but I but th- yeah, he's he's bland as they come. Yeah, he does sort of fall into that template of the guy that you adore because everybody's told you that he's adorable. You don't actually know him, you don't know anything about him, you've never spent mm. any time with him, but everybody says he's a good match. So hey, why not? And his name's charming. He must be great. Was he Prince Charming, or was that the one I- from Cinderella? I don't even remember. I think he's just the prince. That's I think he is just the prince. He's, yeah, he's the prince who comes. Uh, yeah, someday her prince will come. And yeah. The, yeah. I mean, by comparison, Snow White at least gets, you know, you, you find out that she cares about people. She's maternal. She's neat. She it's likes animals. It. She yeah, animals travel. like her. But, uh, but the prince, with, with the way he turns up in that, like, I think the thing that's creepy about him, he's totally oblivious to the fact that the way he intrudes upon her singing is creepy. He's totally oblivious to the fact that the way he intrudes upon her coffin is really creepy. I forgot about the whole coffin intrusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, uh, yeah, Prince, like, uh, I give him a one out of, ten, <laughs> out of ten in terms of princes. Yeah. He's about the most rubbish a prince can get. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what? If he was worse than he is, that would be something. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. He's ultimately just like with everything with this film and with a lot of the early Disney uh, fairy tale based films, the star is more often the fairy tale itself than yeah. the yeah. characters. So he like who who is the prince? So he's the he's the prince who shows up and he like that that's literally all he is. The prince. Mm. The prince who shows up. One in, like, inter- song. I have but one song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, he never introduces himself, comes in, sings, says hello. Buggers off again. Dis- disappears until the end when he's supposed to show up because that's when the prince shows up and does the thing he does that features in the story. And then that's the last. I mean, that's that's as much as we care about him because that's all he's there to do in the fairy tale, which is what this movie wants to be showing us. And fortunately, princes started becoming bit by bit more interesting film by film <laughs> over time. Slowly. Yeah, this is the foundation they work their way up from. But yeah, he's... Uh, yeah, the fact that I couldn't w- remember even whether he was Prince Charming or the <laughs> Prince or anything. I, I yeah. I. <laughs> On the other hand, the, the Wicked Queen is, is pretty uh, excellent. They're uncompromising in how... Um, uh, she's scary and not funny. And yeah, she stands out. She's got some charm to her, at least in being kind of a just really cartoonish evil villain yeah, yeah. sort. And the, the 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 two guises as well. You know, she's she's horrible and, and ugly inside when she's just the sort of the beautiful austere queen, and she's just as horrible and ugly as as the horrible ugly old woman. But she has a little bit more character there, and, and yeah. that, that itself has sort of like the the, the creepy old warty faced woman. Uh, offering you red apples that's about as iconic as it gets what they get wrong for the uh i mean i suppose they just they play it straight laced with both the hero the villain and the uh the princess and again this achieves exactly what they set out to do you know what this movie is this movie is a parent 
sit like sitting on the bedside of a kid as the kid goes to sleep and telling them a story. Yeah. And and it's a kid as and maybe it's the like the numbers that entails. Yeah, it's like here and then the prince showed up and kissed her and they all lived happily ever after. And maybe maybe the parent telling it has a good sense of humor so that when the dwarfs come in they start like having some kind of fun and have, having some little bits and gags and the, these oh these dwarves have their personality. This one's grumpy and this one's dopey. <laughs> but it's still just like at the end of the day it's just very basically telling here is the fairy tale enjoy yeah this is what you know this is the first one you start with and then everything after that is uh uh it's some building upon this structure or diverging from this structure especially these yeah days. yeah this one is pretty much the by the numbers idea yeah that the rest build, build from. Which, if you think about it, is kind of essential because you can't subvert until you have the standard to yeah. subvert. Yeah, very true. We will never, ever argue how important or uh, significant this film is. It's quite boring to watch that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Snow White. These shows are all put together from long sessions recorded throughout 2014 with myself, Dan and Sharon. If you remember, back in early 2014, I was about ready to give up on the podcast altogether, as I saw no way to manage all of these creative projects. I held that off for a year, and Digital Drift was born. Banking this material to release later is what has allowed me to focus now on both writing and producing my book, New Century, as a podcast series, and to balance my freelance work while still keeping the movie, TV, and video gaming reviews going. And of course, as well as Disney, you can look forward to Jurassic Park, The Terminator, The Fast and the Furious, Twilight, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, and a range of other reviews moving forwards. So if you'd like to show your support for all this output, you can do so on Patreon. Or you can donate via PayPal to keep your favourite podcast alive. Next week, Pinocchio. It ain't no trick to get rich quick. If you dig, dig, dig with a shovel or a pick. In a mine, in a mine, in a mine, in a mine, where a million diamonds shine. We dig, 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 dig from early on till night. We dig, 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 dig up everything inside. We dig up diamonds by the score. Thousands will be sometimes born, but we don't know what we dig them for. We dig, 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 a dig, dig. Bye.
I hope, I hope, I hope. 